baskets are being passed, let me remind you, Four Oaks folks, that we have a family meeting coming up on Monday night, May 18th, 6.30 p.m. We have dessert, fellowship, child care provided. Go ahead and sign up for child care if you want to participate in this. We'd love to, to ask you to have at least one representative from your family as a part of that time. Um, we had a family meeting about a month ago where we talked about a number of changes afoot here at Four Oaks, primarily related to our statement of faith and denominational affiliation. And so this meeting will be a follow-up to that, give you an update. Um, It will also be to talk about our financial priorities for the coming year, our budget, our officers, all of those sorts of things. And if you've never been to one of our family meetings, it's a, it's, it's, it'll be, it could be well the highlight of your year, okay? And I'm just exaggerating a tiny bit. They're really, really awesome, and we love them. And so we hope you'll be blessed by them. One of the things that has come out of this season is that we said, you know what? Changing a statement of faith is a really big deal, and what we believe is really important. So let's, let's not formally approve that as a church body until after Um, the summer when we've had a chance to preach through the statement of faith here on Sunday mornings. And so that's going to begin on um, Sunday, June 7th, and we will be in the statement of faith, the Gospel Coalition statement of faith, all the way up to the time school starts again. So that's going to comprise our summer um, sermon series. But until then, we have three sermons left in the book of Acts, that we have been in this book preaching through it for the last nine months. We have three Sundays left, and so you can turn to Acts 26. Here's a question for you. Has there ever been a time in your life when you have just absolutely lost it? Okay. Do you know what I mean by that? Lost it? Gone postal? Went crazy? Lost your mind? Um, Some of us have gone private, uh, postal privately. Or in my case, there's been a couple times in my life where I've lost it publicly. In two times in my life, I can think about, and that's a fine thing to admit on Mother's Day, and so I'm just glad my mom wasn't there to see it, and that she doesn't know how to use a computer to listen to this. So we're all good, okay? And the first time I lost it was at a church league softball game about 20 years, and that resulted in a self-imposed lifetime ban from church league softball, which, which, which stands to this day as I let an umpire kind of know my perspective on his job. Okay. Let me just put it that way. The second was in Birmingham, Alabama of all places. Okay. I don't know what happens in Alabama. They claim to him vented football, whatever. Okay. Mercifully, it was outside the Tallahassee city limits. Okay. And in pre-cell phone era. But I remember we we were traveling. We had wee little ones, and, and we were traveling in the middle of the night. And, and b- but before we had left, we had, we had you know, we were, this is when it took us like eight days to travel from here to Tennessee. And so anyway, we, we said, let's stop in Birmingham and spend the night. And so I went on Priceline, got a great rate, got a cheap rate. We realized, though, after that, that our, that our travel day was going to be delayed. And so I called the hotel, was very courteous, and and I said, I understand that we made this non-refundable purchase, but is it okay if we delay our travel for a day? Can we still, will you still honor our Priceline purchase? And they assured me, assured me that in fact they would do so. And so we'd been traveling all day. We get to this hotel late at night and I went to talk to the hotel employee 
And she must have thought I had like horns growing out of my head or something because she indicated no, they would not be honoring my Priceline reservation. And in fact, if I wanted to stay in her hotel that night, I would be paying for that room again. And so I calmly, as a pastor would, reflectively open the book of 1 Corinthians 13 and talked about how love is kind. And, and I even put my clerical collar on. And uh, no, 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 no. As Susan is like aghast in the background, I just kind of lost it. Okay. Have you, have you ever been there? Okay. Or is this like confessional of the pastor? Okay. Whatever. But I lost it. Okay. And I'm talking a little louder and I'm raising my voice and I'm making my point. And let me assure you, folks, these were excellent points. Okay. I was well-schooled in argumentation and debate, but here was the interesting thing. The louder I talked and the clearer I became, the more hardened and impervious God rests her soul. This hotel worker became to finally we had reached such an impasse that Susan had to come in from the van, spent like 30 seconds talking to the woman, and we were in. Okay, so that's, that's okay. <sighs> yeah, exactly. My wife has a way about her with these things. And guys, when we think about here coming to the end of this sermon series, and we've asked you all to think about who's your one life? Who are you vesting in? Who are you sharing the gospel with? How do we make the book of Acts real? A lot of you might be coming to the end of this series and saying, you know, um, I, 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 don't, I don't see a lot of fruit. And I've kind of used all of my tricks. You know, I've prayed and shared and pleaded and invited and invested myself. And in fact, the more I do that, the more I sort of offer up God's word to this person the more impervious and hardened they seem to become. In fact, the more I talk, the worse it gets. Has that been your experience for any of you? And if so, how are we to think about that? I think, folks, this passage, particularly for moms, you know, we think about all the moms here, and we know how moms you bear the struggles and burdens of your children in a very unique way, in a way that I don't think anyone outside the Lord Jesus truly understands in this life. And so for moms, when you see your straying children, young children, adult children, hardened hearts, you've tried every trick you have in the book, and it seems the more you talk and the harder you try, the more impervious and hardened and blinded they seemingly become. How are we to think about that? And what are we to do about that? I think this passage for Oaks can be very, very helpful to us because when we come to it, we're going to see spiritual blindness all over the place. There's the Jewish leaders and the Gentiles and Festus and King Agrippa and God's truth is being poured out and proclaimed, but yet seemingly to no avail because hearts are hardened in their spiritual blindness. And so as we come to this text in Acts 26, it's kind of a lengthy passage, but we're going we're gonna to make it through. It kind of comprises one narrative, which is why it's so big. Remember the context, Paul's been in jail, house arrest for two years. 
There was, he went to the temple. There was a riot. He was arrested by the Roman proconsul. The Jewish leaders came in to accuse him. He gave a defense. They didn't know what to do with him. They sent him down to Felix in Caesarea. Felix entreats Paul, talks to him for two years. He's, he's under house arrest. Um, no, there's nothing that changes. So a new proconsul comes in, and this one is Festus. I don't know what's up with all these gun smoke names. Okay, but Festus comes in. Okay, that was a shout out to the post-50 the post crowd. Um, but Festus comes in, and, and he doesn't know what to do with Paul. And Paul feels like, I'm about to get the shaft here. I'm appealing to Caesar. Okay, no more trials. I'm going to Caesar. And so, but before Festus sends him off to Caesar, he said, there's one more person I want you to talk with. And that's King Agrippa. And King Agrippa, who's kind of a regional king over the city of Jerusalem, he knows all about the Jews. He knows all about these religious controversies. I'm going to bring him in, Paul, and you're going to share your spill with him. So I kind of even know what to tell Caesar is the reason I'm sending you. And that's where we find ourselves in the text. And I think we're going to learn something about spiritual blindness and how we view it and what we do about it. So here we go, verse one. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you for this hope? I'm, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ and did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Just a brief pause. Paul was absolutely convinced he was right. But he was absolutely wrong. Let's think about that in our lives for a minute. There's people... We've been talking with, sharing with, praying for, pleading with, evangelizing to, just like Paul, absolutely believe that the course they are on is right, but they are deceived. So let's hear what happens to Paul because he's in that place. He says, in this connection, I journey to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, 
why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Jesus shows up. That's the, that's, I should have just said that. Jesus shows up on the road. Here I am, Paul. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our heart's desire for many, many of us, when we think about our one life, or personalize it, our child, our spouse, our friend, our family member, our worker, our college roommate, that our heart's desire is like Paul's. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Lord, that is our heart's desire, that people would come to know you, that hearts and lives and minds would be transformed by the power of the gospel. Lord, that Jesus would become real. Lord, we're just really praying that, that Jesus would become real to the people you've just set all around us. So think, help us to, to think about that biblically, Lord, and to act faithfully as you call us and lead us in this text. In your name we pray, amen. Just two points to this sermon, just two, and hopefully they're pretty straightforward. They're pretty simple. We have one hammer and one nail, and we're just going to go after this over and over and over again. And here are the two points. How are we to think about spiritual blindness that we encounter in our lives, regardless of who it's touched? How are we to think about spiritual blindness? And then secondly, 
what are we to do about spiritual blindness? How are we to think about it? What are we to do about it? And, and, and we're going to start right off the top. And let me say this, this statement, and I'm going to hopefully try to show this to you from the text. And, it, and it's simply this. Spiritual blindness, for Oaks, is not primarily a hearing issue. Spiritual blindness is a seeing issue. I'm going to say it a couple different ways. Spiritual blindness has less to do with being exposed to God's truth and more with an inability to embrace and spiritually see God's truth for what it really is. Our problem is not with our ears. Our problem is with our hearts. Okay, there's a lot of different ways of, of saying that. And, l- and let me just state this disclaimer right up front. We are not denigrating knowledge or God's truth in any way when we say these things. Knowledge is important. Receiving truth is, indo- is, is important. Hearing God's word is indispensable. In fact, we will say this boldly and clearly in a postmodern context. People cannot be saved apart from hearing and receiving the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It, it's very tempting okay, in, our, in our pluralistic culture to say things like, you know, people can worship a variety of gods as they understand them. People can have a variety of experiences, whether it's Buddha, Allah, sort of a generic creator, and that, and that ultimately God will receive um, as worship and as service to him anything sort of done in a very general, generic way. And, and we, 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 we hear that all the time in our context. All roads lead to Rome, um, spiritually speaking. There is no one specific way to know God. And, and we want to stay right off the top here. We don't believe that's true. We think God's word makes this issue very clear. First John five twelve, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God, what does not have life. So knowledge of Christ, who he, who he is, what he has done is indispensable. It's foundational. Okay. However, for salvation, knowledge, now here's, here, this is important, folks. Knowledge is necessary, but it is not sufficient. Okay? Knowledge is necessary, but it is not sufficient. And that should be a real clarion call to us when we think about that, particularly in a Christian context with, 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 with having what I call covenant children. That means children who are born in the Christian homes, raised in the Christian church. We have covenant children who um, know the creeds, the catechisms, the Bible verses, have been in school their whole life. They've been trained with the family devotionals. They know the Bible from A to Z, but their hearts are hard and impervious. They are spiritually blind. Knowledge is important, but it's not sufficient. And here's why. There has to be what the Bible calls sight. 
there has to be spiritual openness and an ability to embrace the truth. Okay, so look at the text here. And I want you to note all the different places where we see spiritual blindedness. Okay, verse 17. Paul, it says, is being sent to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And how does it describe them? They are blind, right? Um, they walk in darkness. They are under the power of Satan. And we, you might look at that and say, well, look, well, of course they are, Pastor Paul, because they're ignorant of God's truth. We, of course, would expect them to be blind. But notice all the other players in the story. Look at Paul himself in verse 4. Guys, Paul grew up and trained in Jerusalem, the epicenter of biblical thought. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, verse 5, an expert in the law. He had been trained in the scriptures. Um, for Oaks, he, he knew the law and the prophets. Um, he was an expert. In verse 9, it says that he was convinced of his course of action of persecuting the church. How could Paul get it and not get it? Well, he was blind. Verse 20 and 21, look at the Jews. They are trying to kill Paul for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. They're trying to kill Paul. And yet Paul makes it clear, the whole law and the prophets say, this is why we exist as a nation. This is why God made the promise to Abraham. We are to be a light to the Gentiles. They knew the same word of God, but yet they're trying to kill Paul. Why? Because they were blinded. Look at verse 25, King Agrippa. It says in the text that none of these things had escaped his notice, that he knew and witnessed and was exposed to the prophets. In fact, Paul says, King Agrippa, you even believe in the prophets. And what he means there is even you acknowledge the authority of the prophets. Parents, we've got a lot of kids who will acknowledge intellectually the authority of God's word. But yet, just like King Agrippa, what does it say in verse 28? He's incredulous. Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Because he was incredulous, even after so much exposure and sitting at the feet of the greatest of the prophets and the teachers. Why? He was blinded. Festus, last example. Guys, Festus, can you imagine the greatest missionary and preacher in the history of the church hanging out with you in your house? Festus had audience with Paul. He could talk to Paul. He could interact with Paul. He's sitting and holding court with the apostle Paul. And, and, and what does Festus say at the end of hearing this great gospel, redemptive, testimonial story from Paul? What does he say? Paul, you are out of your mind. Why? Because he's blinded. You see, Scripture presents this picture for us, for Oaks, of spiritual blindness as our natural state. Okay, look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. We'll flash this up there for you. And I want you to think about this, okay? Because a lot of times we will take the stance that, that, that we just got to continue to pound 
And, you know, knowledge is sufficient. We've got to continue to pound knowledge. Knowledge is important. It's indispensable. We've already said that. But listen, but there's a condition of the heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's this idea, the gospel is hidden. It's, it's, it's not perceptible. And Paul says, even if our gospel is, it is, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from, here's the word, what is it? Seeing. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. We don't have a hearing issue. We don't have a problem with our ears. We have a problem with our eyes. Our, the world and our flesh and the devil has veiled the gospel to natural man. And that was Paul. Guys, that was Paul. He knew the Old Testament. He knew God's truth. He had an, an impeccable spiritual pedigree but he missed Christ. And, and let me tell you one of the reasons why I speak from a place of, when I talk about children raised in Christian homes or, or even sort of identifying myself with, with Paul here. Guys, I had a pretty robust spiritual heritage growing up. Um, I went to a gospel preaching church. I went to youth camp. I went to... Um, youth group, the summer camps. I was a member in the church. My dad taught evangelism explosion. Imagine what it's like having an evangelism explosion teacher in your house at your dinner table every night. Okay. That was me. I went on mission trips. I had a knowledge that surpassed many, if not most of my peers, but here's the problem. My heart was totally unaffected. I was impervious I was hardened, and I was hardened because I was blinded, just like 2 Corinthians tells us, to my true need for Jesus. And this was the Apostle Paul, and he was blinded. And look at what happens in the text and what happens to Paul in the middle of this spiritual blindness. And I'm going to maintain, I'm just going to give you the the punchline here. I believe what Paul is describing here. Is, is the conversion story of every one of us who know Christ. And it has to be the conversion story of everyone who's ever going to come to know him, metaphorically. Let's look at the text. It's, Paul is convinced, verse 9, and it says in verse 11 that in raging fury I persecuted them. Guys, have you ever known someone who was so convinced they were so right, but yet they were just absolutely so wrong, right? Do you you know people like this? This was Paul. He was zealous. He was absolutely convinced in his own mind. He was doing exactly what God was telling him to do. But it makes an interesting, interesting disclaimer in verse 14. It says that he was kicking against the goads. Okay, we're, we, we, a lot of us aren't familiar with that, but it was a Middle Eastern terminology where if you had an ox who was plowing and the ox wasn't doing what you wanted it to do, you get you a little stick, 
sharpen it to a point. And what would you do with that stick if the ox was not cooperating? And moms, your you know, dads are going to give these to you for Mother's Day, okay? So what do you do? You, like, jab it into the ox, and he doesn't like it, okay? And so what does he do? He gets moving. He gets going. But what would oftentimes happen is that if the ox didn't like you sticking it with that thing, it would kind of buck and kick and not do what it was supposed to do. But the more it bucked and kicked, the worse it hurt. And Paul seems to be saying, when I was an unbeliever and blinded to the gospel, that's what my conscience was like. I, I, I was convinced, yet deep, deep, deep down in the recesses of my heart, I knew something wasn't right. And my conscience was bothering me. It was indicting me. I was resisting it. And the more I resisted it, the worse it got. And guys, I can testify that because I was a guilt-ridden adolescent. I, I, despite the spiritual pedigree and my hardness of heart, there was something that was nagging within me. There was a goad that was constantly pressing into my heart. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not living up to what you're supposed to live to. And, and this was the experience of Paul. And here's, here's, but here's the hard thing. As parents, we can have kids who have a seared conscience. Parents, we can have kids who have a burdened heart. But what we learn from Paul's testimony that the burdened conscience is not enough. God has to show up and give sight. And look at verse 13. Paul says, there was a bright light that appeared. And Jesus stood before me. And he says in verse 16, rise and stand, Paul, because I am appointing you. And the word for appointing literally means, Paul, you are my vessel of election. Paul, I've had my eye on you the whole time. Paul, I had, I had set you apart before you were ever born to be my apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul, you were impervious to the truth. Paul, your heart was hardened. Paul, your conscience was bothering you, but Paul, you were marching down to Damascus even with a seared conscience, and you were about to kill even more Christians. And Paul, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to plot myself right down on this road to Damascus, and for the first time, you are going to see me for who I truly am. Paul, I am opening your eyes to see my all-surpassing Glory, And this was the time that Jesus became overwhelmingly compelling to Paul because his sight was restored and the spiritual scales fell off. And when you think about your own testimony, and what you think about this, when your own testimony, was it your great intellect that, that, that caused the scales to fall? Was it your pedigree? Was it luck? Was it mere circumstance? Were you in the debater's chair? Were, were you reading a philosophy book? Maybe you're reading a philosophy book. 
not one from FSU. You reading the philosophy book? What, what was it? What was it? For me, it was the summer of 1988. And I had been kicking against the goads for a long time. But I was marching forward with a seared conscience until God absolutely, at least for a 19-year-old, dropped the bottom out of my life for that point in time. And relationship and career path and trajectory all sort of came tumbling down. And for the very first time, two things happened for Oaks. I saw myself for who I truly was, which was wretched and miserable. And I saw Jesus for how truly awesome he is. And that's what's happened to Paul. And that's what happens for all of us, if you're a Christian. This is the way Paul describes conversion in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 6. We were just in this text. Remember how we were blinded. So what has to happen to unblind you? What has to happen to unblind your one life or the kid in your home or your spouse, whoever? 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now listen to this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Books have been written on this passage. Paul seems to be saying this. Just as at the dawn of creation, where this, this, he quotes Genesis 1 here, and there was total darkness, and there was nothing to behold, and there was nothing that existed, God spoke into that out of his own divine initiation and said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. Paul said, you want to know how you were converted? God said, let there be light into your soul and into your heart. And it was. Folks, for the spiritually dead to become spiritually alive, there has to be a sovereign, divine work of his incredible, sovereign, divine grace. And as you hear that, and as you let that sit on your soul, we, we know immediately, okay, no little sleight of hand, no little cute evangelistic technique, okay? No little piece of manipulation. No sort of conjoling brings someone into the kingdom. God's sovereign grace has to open people's eyes. And if that's true, this is our last point, then what are we to do? What are we to do? Is there anything for us to do? Let's go back to the text. I think there is. Two application points. What are we to do? First one is this. Very clear. Share your story. Share your story. Now, if you're like playing Mr. Philosopher in the crowd right now, okay, you or Mrs. Philosopher, you might be tempted to say, well, well Pastor Paul, you just told us. It's God's sovereign grace. There's nothing ultimately that I can do. God's decisive here. God has to open hearts and eyes. Why would you tell me to share my story? That doesn't make any philosophical sense. To which I would say, Four Oaks, 
don't be more clever than God. Okay? Don't be smarter than God. Don't create dichotomies where there are none that exist. Guys, evangelism, you sharing your story, is not antithetical to God's sovereignty. Both are absolutely true. God says, look, here, here's your part, Pastor Paul. You, you, you share your faith, and you pray like crazy, and you do what the Trosha sets, what you just told them to do. You invest yourself in your kids. You invest yourself in your life. But, but here's the deal. You leave the results to me. That's, that's my gig. Your gig is this thing over here. I use those things to accomplish my things. And how that all fits together, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait till the other side of eternity to understand how it all meshes. Now, let me give you an example, I think, which I think is from Paul's own ministry. Okay, Romans 9, the ultimate chapter in all the Bible on God's sovereignty. Okay, and here's what, here's what Paul says in chapter 15. Remember, this isn't theoretical to Paul. He's got a whole nation that's turned its back literally on the, on the Savior. And he's trying to make sense of this. And people are saying, Paul, don't you see? God's word is filled. He's like, the problem is not God's word. Okay, this is all wrapped up in the purposes of God. And listen to what he says. I'm just going to read a portion of it. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it then depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's a hard verse for parents. It doesn't ultimately depend on those things. It depends on the mercy and sovereign grace of God. Now, listen to what Paul says one chapter over. Okay, don't create a dichotomy for oaks. Don't be like, well, then what does it matter? What I? No, no, no. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You may say that sounds contradictory. It's not. It's just the mystery of God. God uses means. God uses prayer. God uses teaching. God uses evangelism. God uses your story to be the very means by which he lifts the blinders from people's eyes. But just know, people's salvation doesn't ultimately rest on your soul. For us, that is a tyranny. That is a tyranny. Entrust yourself to the good promises of God. So when we go look back at the text, here we have Paul, the most trained missionary in history. And do you know what one of Paul's favorite most effective gospel sharing techniques is. And this is Paul with degrees. This is Paul with, with the Pentateuch. This is Paul with the training. He just shares his story about how God changed his life. And you know, the reason that your story can be such a powerful tool in people's lives is this. You can't it's very difficult to argue with someone's personal testimony, isn't it? It's very difficult to argue with someone's personal experience. It doesn't mean that all personal experiences are valid. But for the Christian whose story is based in the truth of the gospel, people may deny its source, but they cannot deny the power. They cannot deny the impact and change 
that it has made in your life. And so, Forbes, let me, let me say this. Um, a lot of us, when it comes to this, say, I don't know enough, Pastor Paul. I'm not trained enough. I don't. If you are a member of Four Oaks Church, you've had to write down your testimony somewhere, okay? And you were interviewed by a pastor at some point, and I've read many of those. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know enough. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Look what Jesus has done in my life. He died for me. That's a very simple gospel presentation. It doesn't address all the issues, but it addresses enough. It's what God uses. Second thing you can do, and we can, we'll close here. Share your story, number one. Number two, wherever you are is the best place to be for the gospel. You know, a lot of times we'll look at our lives and say, Pastor Paul, not only do I not know enough, but my life's a mess. It's a wreck. My relationships, my marriage, my kids, I, my money, I'm just totally disqualified from being a witness for the gospel. Because in that culture, Paul was totally disqualified for sharing the gospel. He is in chains He is demonstrating profound shame and personal weakness. The elite of the elites is now humbled. People are trying to kill him. There's false accusations. He's shunned by his own people. There's beatings. There's embarrassment. And there's failure. Yet Paul here says, God's sovereignty has transformed my perspective. That in my weakness, what? God is strong. And in his power, he makes his power perfect in my weakness. Folks, a lot of times people don't need your nifty, polished life as part of the story that you share. They just need to see God's grace in your life, that you're a broken person, that you're sinful, that you've made tragic mistakes sometimes. But God gives you his grace and gives you his mercy. You want people turning to Christ because of who Christ is, not because of how awesome you are. Share your story wherever you find yourself and leave the results to a sovereign God who has the care of your soul in his hands. Let's pray.